Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Welcome to Black Letter Podcast. This is episode one of season two, or maybe it's episode 11, one of the two. Uh, I have with me today Bob Edinger and Ellis Bennett. And Bob and Ellis are both attorneys with Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig. Um, what's interesting is what they used to do. So Bob was the uh, interim chief counsel for the Central Intelligence Aid Agency in the United States from 2009. Well, from uh, I was the, um, the head operational lawyer from 2009 to 2015. And I was the acting general counsel um, in... October 2013 through March 2014. So, got it. So you were the, the head lawyer of the spooks. You could, yes. Head, head of the sp lawyer spies. And uh, Ellis Bennett with us here today, also one of Bob's partners at Dunlap Bennett Lenwig, was uh, a JAG, a Judge Advocate General with the U.S. Army. And they actually intersected a little bit. Ellis was at Guantanamo Bay doing a case uh, and Bob was the boss of the CIA operation that supported the Guantanamo Bay prosecutions. So some stuff we're going to talk about. And I'm just, you know, I'm just going to dive in. So our, our, our goal today is to talk a little bit about uh, national security law and cybersecurity and practice. But we're going to talk about some current events, too. And I'm going to probably raise Bob's eyebrows and Ellis's eyebrows when I ask them a little bit about um, how are we dealing with security issues like our current president. Um, his name's Donald Trump. You've, you've probably heard of him. Uh, but he has given security clearances to people maybe that some people say shouldn't. Um, he's done some controversial things uh, in kind of in the world, in, in the context of the intelligence community. And so I'm curious, uh, Bob, as somebody who used to be the, the head of one of those intelligence organizations, legal counsel, um, and Ellis is a former JAG, as uh, somebody who advised uh, the Army, um, as a former a major in the Army. Uh, what, how do you deal with that? You know, what do you do when the, literally the head of both of your organizations, right? At the end of the day, Mr. Trump is the boss of bosses, the, the head of the executive branch. So in charge of the CIA, in charge of the U.S. Army. You know, how do you deal with that? Uh, I just want to jump right in with the most controversial thing I can think of. Um, I think the challenge uh, for the agency, and I think also for uh, active duty military, is the ability to stay apolitical in a politically charged environment where you, uh, you cannot predict which way your leader is going to go. Uh, and at least in the council's office, what we would often find our responsibility uh, is to take a look at actions and statements that were proposed for the director to give or the DDO to give. And, and, and the DDO is... The D is the, uh, he's the, the chief of the clandestine service, the chief Deputy spy, Director really. of Operations. Deputy Director of Operations used to be the director of the National Clandestine Service. They changed names over time. Uh, and make sure to, that they don't take 
or could be interpreted as taking a political position. Okay. Um, then on the security issue, you're basically stuck with the fact that the, the president controls access to classified information, and if he says so-and-so is to have access, you have to give them access. Yeah, okay. and, and I think just, uh, you know, the, the, the people under the chief executive, um, you know, despite the political environment, just need to do their jobs, follow the chain of command, and take the information to the executive. And as Bob said, it's his decision ultimately. Um, so I'm going to come back to that subject because I want to build up to it a little bit because I have a, uh, an interesting question about, you know, what happens if, if one of the orders you get is something you suspect might not be right or moral or ethical or, or legal, and those are different things. But before we get there, so I want to talk a little bit about, Bob, um, some of the things you've done. So we got a list from the, the CIA about what we could say and couldn't say. And I know that I can say you had something to do with killing Osama bin Laden, which is pretty cool. I think, actually, uh, I heard at the partner retreat, it was one of the big wins in the last few years. One of your big wins was you killed Osama bin Laden. I thought that was kind of interesting. So uh, tell me about that. How did, how, did you, how did you help get that guy? Uh, well, yeah, obviously, I didn't kill Osama bin Laden. They worked with Usama. the military, uh, Osama bin Laden, and they worked with the military, uh, you know, uh, SEAL team to go in there and actually conduct the operation. But uh, with respect to the, the operation, there were a number of legal issues that we wanted to make sure were resolved and worked through first. Uh, we wanted to be able to demonstrate, or I should say that the uh, CI general counsel was uh, Stephen Preston at the time, wanted to be able to demonstrate that we had thought all these issues through before the operation, and we were not sort of reconstructing and justifying actions after the fact. So identified six different legal issues that needed to be uh, examined, and uh, we then divvied those up between uh, CIA, the Justice Department, the DOD General Counsel, uh, and I think that's it. And between those three agencies wrote these uh, six papers. The operation was so compartmented that the only person in the DOD General Counsel who could know of this was the actual, it was Jay Johnson, the general counsel. So he couldn't even have his special assistant type up his legal memo. Wow. Uh, we wouldn't fax drafts back and forth. We would hand carry them uh, and deliver it into his hands. Uh, and then when he was done typing it, uh, and he was a good spirit about the whole thing, he did it all, he would call us up, we'd go down and retrieve it. Uh, and the same thing with the Justice Department, there were a few more people right in at the Justice Department. But it was very, tightly held because we didn't, we couldn't run the risk uh, of a leak. So there's a lot behind this kind of, I, I mean, I, I was a, um, an armor officer, cavalry officer, and all I know is Osama bin Laden, pronouncing it correctly now, I think, uh, bad guy, find him, kill him, right? But there's more to it than that, I assume. There's, um, there's quite a bit to him. There's, uh, you know, the fact that you are going into a foreign country to execute uh, an operation uh, and... Um, execute, you mean... To carry out an operation, to carry out a mission, executing. We weren't ex. Uh, well, they, they, uh, they did shoot him. That wasn't right. a, a, quite the ex an execution. But th there was a number of issues. If he, what were you? you know, did you have to prefer capture um, uh, over killing? Did you? Uh, you did not. Uh, oh, on the basis of we were operating under law of armed conflict, not under a police. Uh, not a police action. A police action, in which case you would have had to go in and attempt to arrest him. In this case, uh, as you could with any other military activity, if he's the head of the uh, uh, military arm of an enemy, you, uh, under the law of armed conflict, can go in and basically take, take him out. 
If he attempts to surrender, you have to accept the surrender, though. Gotcha. Um, if it's, quote, feasible to do so. And feasible is basically means that if you're in the middle of a firefight and one of the guys on the other side says, I give up, and nobody else does. You can keep shooting. You can keep shooting. Right. It's re um, reasonable is feasible. Yeah. The fact that it might be kind of hard to get the guy out of the country if he gives up is not a, a so, feasibility reason. Question. So did he surrender? I'm just, do you know? I mean, well, I don't The facts we have are no. Okay. You know, the the... Uh, all of these, that legal issue was briefed in advance to the SEALs who went over there. So they knew that if he attempted to surrender, they had uh, to accept it. And that was not, nothing particularly new because they're all very schooled in law of armed conflict. Um, and so they went over and uh, um, uh, he did not attempt to surrender from all the statements that had been made by the various SEALs. Or so, so did everybody feel like, good, we're glad he didn't attempt to surrender? Or would you rather have had him... Uh, and his intelligence, the wealth of intelligence he might have had, or I don't. Well, I don't expect he would have said anything. Um, okay. Had they uh, had they been arrested, and there was a real concern that if you took custody uh, of him, that you would then make yourself the focus of retaliatory action by all of Al Qaeda and a number of the associated groups who, in an effort to free him, or in something. an effort to free him, and to sort of penalize right. the United States for taking custody of him. Um, uh, but that was, uh, a lot of these issues had to be debated at the National Security Council level, and the president had to make the ultimate decisions right. as to what to do. And he, uh, the president made those decisions, uh, and, and they were uh, carried out very professionally uh, by the, the SEALs. So, so that reminds me, you, you said that the head of, I guess, the John Jay, was it? Or the person? Jay Johnson was Jay the Johnson. DOD general counsel. John Jay was Supreme Court, yes. 1800s, right. Jay Johnson. So he had to type his own memos. Um, so I, I remember that that uh, we once had a cleared case that we were involved in a bid protest that required a security clearance. And we made the mistake of having just two partners cleared onto the case and no staff and no associates. And we ended up doing all the paralegal work. Is this kind of a, a challenge that I guess is outside of the I mean, I ran into it once with a case like that, this bid protest. But uh, is there a way around that challenge now when you deal with top secret cases? Do you deal with top secret cases uh, in your practice? And, and how does that work? Um, I have in my current practice clients whose uh, legal needs, to explain the legal needs, they have to uh, reveal classified information uh, a lot at the top secret level. Uh, I don't need to take notes of a lot of that. I simply need to know what it is they want to accomplish, whether they have, the, have been given the authority by the government to do the things that they want to do. Uh, and, um, uh, and then I can reflect those in notes that don't really reveal what the real secret is and then, in, and then produce the legal product. Most cases can be totally unclassified right. as long as you're not explaining why you're doing something. Now, the contrary would be if you were, um, having to file a pleading that contained classified information, Correct. then you would need to go to the government and ask them to provide you with a, uh, a laptop that has an encrypted hard drive that you you could just say use temporarily right. to prepare the document, uh, and then they would they would get the hard the hard drive back when the case was over. When I was at CIA, we did this for some of the um, uh, cases that we were involved in, often the criminal cases, because in a civil case, there's, the government has a lot more control over whether to uh, allow the defense to have access to classified information or to prepare classified information. So in a we, criminal case, it's constitutional, so the person has to have access. Have the right. So we had a case with the agency, Ellis. You had a case. We um, did. I think that that was a case where 
we had to lock down access. Do you remember how that case went? Um, I think Bob I, was at the agency at the time. What year was that? Probably was. Um, it was about three years ago. Um, so so you we were dealing there. directly with You're, CIA I general counsel's office. End of 2015. Okay. okay. Um, it was around well, about that was, time. It was around that time. Yeah, 2014, it, 15. Yeah, it, start, it started actually in 2013. I think when we were dealing with the agency, it would have been a couple of years later because it lasted a while. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to, to say about that case. Well, so without um, talking about but, the case, I think we can say that, th that there are challenges in dealing with legal issues, national security and cybersecurity issues that involve classified information. And so what would you say to corporate counsel or to other attorneys who don't have those clearances or need an attorney with those clearances, how do you deal with, with those issues with your clients? Do you need to call in somebody like you guys? Or, um, or when you learn that it involves classified information, what do you do? What precautions do you take? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you absolutely have to get a cleared attorney uh, because unless you're cleared or uh, you can't do the case. So it goes back to kind of what Bob talked about. In terms so how does a cleared of, attorney then, Ellis or Bob, how do you work with a non-cleared attorney, who, an attorney who's who doesn't have any kind of clearance at all, and they it's their client, but you're the only one with the clearance, um, what would you, would, would you do in a case like that? Uh, it, well, in a case like that, you have to um, carefully divide what the classified facts are from the unclassified facts, and uh, you, can't, you simply cannot share classified facts with the uncleared attorney, and then you have to determine whether it's practical to represent the person and to solve their legal problem with that bifurcated structure, because if it's not practical, Either you can't perform the legal service even though you're cleared and therefore you should really bow out or the other attorney needs to either cede the case or get a clearance. Yeah, I see. Yeah, the practical things I've run into in doing cases like that is, mm -hmm. aside from the legal issue, almost the, the clearance classified versus not classified issue and how to get that information to the non-cleared attorney kind of takes over and becomes the main issue in the case, or at least as much of the main issue as the legal issues you're dealing with. So Sharing the information with the other attorneys. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, the, it, so it makes a case that might be otherwise straightforward. Less straightforward. Less straightforward. Um, so I guess the, the ultimate question, is that a function of attorneys being attorneys? Or is that a function of the, the material itself? Probably a combination. Uh, it, of the it's two. a combination. And um, in my experience in dealing with the agency attorneys was very positive. They worked closely with me and, and were very cooperative in letting me know what I could do because I didn't want to overstep the line. And I made contact with the agency attorneys immediately on the case we were talking about just, right. to, just to make sure I wasn't crossing any, any lines that I shouldn't have been. And, and our client was interested in cooperating. But um, it, it was an interesting situation uh, with his mission, um, and obviously working with the, with the agency. So this um, was a, a, an employee of the agency who was behind enemy lines and had an employment issue with the agency while he was behind enemy lines. Yes, I think. In short, uh, I think without that, saying anything more about it, without saying anything more right. than that, that's, that, that's a good characterization. It's a nice broad. I checked with Bob beforehand. He said we could talk generally. Okay. None of that's <laughs> classified. That's pretty general. And this um, is interesting. You see, we're kind of dancing around it here in this podcast. So imagine when you're because we have case. to because we have going to be on the yes. internet, and exactly. the internet is forever. But um, uh, it's it's the same in a legal case. You're kind of always that's always in the background yeah. of your of your legal issues that you're dealing with. So well, so I don't know if you know this, Bob. Actually, uh, in addition to being in the the agency, was also a four star general. Uh, or wait, you played one on TV. I played one on TV. So I don't know yes. if you know this. He was the advisor for the television show Homeland. The military advisor. I remember hearing something about that. And somewhere. appeared as an actor in one scene because an actor had to leave early. 
So, Bob, tell us about that. I mean, how did you end up as the advisor for home? this TV show, Homeland? My parents love it. I haven't seen it, but I hear it's good. I yeah. assume you watch it. I, I did. I was, um, it's on, I think this is going to be the final season, season okay. eight. I was on, in uh, uh, an advisor for season uh, seven. Okay. Uh, a lot of Showtime's advisors for Homeland were former CIA, and they were looking for a military advisor. So uh, one of their consultants called me and said, hey, do you know any former JAGs? And I said, well, yes, I'm one. And so he linked me up with the executive producer. Uh, we had a conversation. I signed a you contract. You were a Navy JAG, right? I was a Navy JAG. And we don't hold that against you, Ellis and I, as Army guys. I was never a JAG. Well, I could certainly understand why you wouldn't hold it against me. <laughs> Um, the, uh, so, you know, the, my first advisory role was to assist on what an army court-martial would look like, an army court-martial on a U.S. Navy base. So why would that happen? Um, this is television. Oh, okay. And so uh, <laughs> you have That's a good to, question. You have, suspend your disbelief. Uh, We're going to suspend have your disbelief. You, they want to be as accurate as they can be while... Um, including sustaining the, the drama, the drama there is, it is an entertaining show right. and entertainment is, is the priority. So I ended up spending a lot of time finding out how the army does court martials. Is, is it any different procedural, uh, you know, protocol wise? Uh, and it goes all the way down to the uniforms, uh, that would be worn the, the rank of the members. This was going to be a, um, a court martial of a four-star general. So, oh, wow. Who is going to be on the jury? Well, they've got to be court his peers. Of a four -star. So suspend your disbelief. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. you had to get other, other four-stars um, yeah. uh, to do that. Has uh, that ever happened, a four-star general court martial? I don't know. I can't uh, even imagine. I know. Having, having been an aide to a general, I can't see any general getting court-martialed. Oh, they've been court There have been oh, flag okay. officers have been court-martialed. Uh, but, but I don't know about four stars. Four stars, um, I'm, I'm unaware. The, the sergeant major of the Army was court-martialed at Fort Belvoir shortly before I got there, and they, they made the courtroom look really nice, which was nice for me practicing there. Did he, was he convicted? Um, I don't remember, honestly. The sergeant major of the Army? Yeah, sergeant wow. major of the Army. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, that's, that's crazy. And let's stop for a moment and hear from our supporters. Thank you to our sponsor today, Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig. Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig solves complex business problems with smart solutions, acting as advocates and advisors to their clients with diverse professional backgrounds from MBAs to PhDs to bankers to military officers, real-world experience for real-world problems. Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig doing better law. To find out more, visit www.dblawyers.com. Um, I guess just jumping topic to topic. Now, to bring it full circle back to my, my big question. So if um, you were advising right now the president on uh, classified issues and how to deal with um, cybersecurity, uh, well, actually, no, let, let, me, let me wind that question back and depoliticize this. You're advising corporate counsel on how to deal with cybersecurity issues. What are the biggest threats to this country right now from a cybersecurity, national security standpoint? Well, I mean, the biggest threat to the country is that so much business is necessarily done over the Internet, okay. and which inherently uh, opens up the data systems of the corporate client uh, to penetration by either state actors or non-state actors. The, every time a method of security is developed, it's, it's like the arms race. You have the criminal element or the state actors who are trying to stay one step ahead of you. And when you develop 
if you will, which you think the perfect firewall is, they're going to spend uh, time and resources defeating it either technically or through the weakness of any system, which is its people. Okay. The spear phishing uh, and other uh, what they, you know, uh, social uh, approaches to the employee base. So what lo- it gets a lot of, of the outsiders into your database. And once they're in... They can do whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. And the question is, how quickly can you find them and shut them out? Uh, and so that, what's your function as a cybersecurity lawyer? How do, how do you advise corporate counsel? How do we get ahead of that as best you can? I mean, outside of a technical solution. Well, as a, as a lawyer, what you can be familiar with for them is sort of what the legal standards are that have been developed because uh, there's, there's two things for the company. There's its reputation and its ability to be a attract customers to the future. So right. uh, if you are breached, you are going to lose customers. Um, right. and the bigger the breach and the less trust you'll have. So you've got that, and that's very important. The second one is you can be sued uh, for whether you were negligent or didn't uh, keep your cybersecurity up to industry standards. So what we can advise on are what are the industry standards and what are the levels of responsibility that the courts are imposing on these companies. Take a look at their current plan and see is it up to snuff? Are there more things they can do? Gotcha. Uh, And particularly today when there are lots of notification requirements in addition to just protecting the data, but what do you do when there's a breach? Gotcha. And making sure they understand that, which can, affect, which can vary by state and by subject matter. So it includes a, a combination of both technical prowess and operational security, physical, operational, human security as well. And your, both your contracting and your legal documents, things like that. Um, so uh, are there anything that you guys like to say, generally speaking, to uh, attorneys or corporate counsel who are watching our podcast and hoping for hints and tips and insider things like, what's the easiest thing that I could do today as a corporate counsel of a company? I'm the corporate counsel of uh, a company that has a, well, so I I don't know if this happened. I'm sure it happened to you because you were in the army at the same time I was, but, uh, and probably because you're a federal employee, but all of our data was at the Veterans Administration and we got these free, uh, accounts, credit monitoring accounts, because our data was stolen when I guess somebody at the Department of Veterans Affairs lost their laptop. I don't know if you remember that um, breach, but um, how does a company avoid that? What's one thing a corporate counsel can do right now to avoid that? Well, I mean, uh, obviously you could never permit that kind of data to be put into a laptop. That would be a good start, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know why an individual would need to carry a laptop that has a bulk collection of personal data or corporate secrets on it, um, that can then be so easily lost because, you know, if you have a... So would you, would you say keeping your data on a server that can only be remotely accessed, is that the best way, like a, a kind of an operational standard or, or cloud? Is AWS secure? Is Amazon secure? Amazon has uh, servers that uh, offer security, uh, and I understand it's state-of-the-art. The problem with state-of-the-art is it's... It's state of the art until the until adversary figures out how to how to breach it. Gotcha. Uh, whether or not uh, Amazon Cloud has been ever breached, I I haven't heard. I don't have any idea. But you have to know that it is a massive target for both foreign states, I'm sure, uh, international organized crime, and 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 just your simple recreational hacker who likes to cause you know mayhem just for the sheer joy of it. Yeah, it, I mean, just generally, it's, 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 to me, it's a twofold problem. You have the technology side of things and protecting it as a company, but then you have the people side that Bob mentioned, which is, 
you have to train your people to understand why it's important not to take that laptop home because right. of course it's more convenient probably for that employee to take that data home and work in the evening or the weekend but but they're important security risks and, so, and it just comes down to training a lot of times so you assume then i mean i'm not saying that you assume but one can one tries to assume that your employees are good actors that they do good things that they have good intentions what happens when you have a snowden i mean i know it's impossible to prevent a snowden uh, Edward Snowden, you guys are both I've heard of familiar. him, heard yes. of him maybe. Um, but how do you, how do you presage that? How do you get ahead of something like that? Is it impossible? Are there things you can do? Things you should think I about? Mean, I mean, lie detector test of every employee. The first step with, with him was the security clearance process. Um, from what I understand, there may have been some red flags that, that I mean, there, it's all hindsight, but that's the first step in identifying someone like him. But at some point, if someone decides to, you know, decides to be flip a bad a light actor, switch flip a light switch there's only so much you can do about it and, right. the, and that's that's the challenge but there are things you can put in place operationally um, to prevent those kinds of things too you know backstops you know to make sure you're looking at what your employees are doing um, and, and I think the more secure the environment uh, right you know, the more sensitive the data is the more important it is to do that but but at the end of the day um, a bad actor uh, bad actor is a bad, bad actor is a bad actor okay yeah uh, just like the government, corporations can create and develop what they call insider threat programs, which okay. go all the way from you know training the employees uh, on how to avoid being tricked into revealing uh, stuff, to uh, how you hire people um, and how you monitor their access, what kind of uh, activity looks suspicious, uh, and how you identify uh, when they've acted, and how do you identify what they've compromised after they've acted, and all that can be done through uh, programming, uh, there's a lot of different companies that offer the various uh, algorithms and services to allow you both to identify practice of an employee that looks uh, uh, suspicious, uh, as well as to audit after the fact if an employee does turn a light switch and go bad, what did they take with them? You need to be able to look at your system and see what that person did, what they down may have downloaded and walked off with. And does uh, your company get in trouble for that then? Say you're on a government contract? I mean, I assume well, there's some risk there. Well, the government, con yeah, there would be. The government contracts typically require you to have some sort of a, a insider threat uh, program or practice, uh, depending upon the size of the contract, so that you can uh, meet a minimum level of responsibility in this area. It's okay. become very more important to the government now post-Snowden than it was uh, before because so. Snowden uh, yeah. highlighted uh, with computers, how much you can take, take and how quickly uh, on, you know, flash drives and other things or load up to the cloud as he, you know, as one time said he did. He's still, he's still living in Russia? He's still living in, yes, Russia. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you heard, is he living like a good life or is it kind of an awkward, like, oh, you're that guy. People see him around Moscow. I, I have no insight into yeah. whether he's living luxuriously so there's, there's no SEAL Team 6 for him in his future, probably? Probably not, but I, I suspect, <laughs> uh, you know, were he to take a, a sudden out-of-Russia vacation, uh, people might be more uh, interested, interested uh, in where he uh, may be vacationing. So, uh, so Cuba's probably still safe for him right yeah. now. Cuba is probably, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> no, probably still safe. Um, but you never know, uh, yeah. you know, just like Venezuela, I think, was safe at one point. Is it as safe today? Yeah, probably I, not. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, guys, uh, thanks uh, today. Is, I don't know if there's anything else you want to want to add or throw in there. Or I assume that that if 
clients or customers or companies have these needs, obviously that's what your practice is and they should reach out. Um, yeah. I wanted to add one thing and yeah. that is, there's uh, a lot of firms that advertise and make mention of the standard national security law practice doing you know, CFIUS reviews and, and reviews of whether there's foreign uh, control and influence over a U.S. company that, that's bidding on a DOD right. or other classified contract or how to appeal uh, security clearance denial. So there's all the, the sort of well-known national security practice. There's another practice that's not as well-known and it deliber deliberately so, and that's, I'll call it tradecraft, and that is uh, the legal practice of helping um, uh, uh, U.S contractors support the special activities of the United States. They need to do some things that are creative, both in corporate structure and otherwise, in order to fulfill those missions. Uh, and the, uh, those companies do not want to link up with uh, firms that widely advertise an expertise in a particular area, because that highlights that maybe they're engaging in that activity. I see. So uh, um, the, the, I think the expertise that we have is, is to, we can provide some of this tradecraft legal support. We simply can't advertise what that legal right, support is. Got, the companies that yeah. are asked to do it will know what it is and can reach out um, if they, they need the support uh, and not be worried about, um, you know, if you go to our website and look up what we do, uh, it being widely advertised and therefore making yourself a target of you know, foreign services or hostile organizations. So, so your team is, is you, CIA, NSA, and then we've got uh, David, DOD. DOD, yeah. And then uh, Noah is still, Noah Fontanez is a lieutenant colonel. I believe he's um, currently cleared, and he's the staff judge advocate at Fort Benning. Ellis, former judge advocate, and uh, Ben Barlow, former NSA attorney, um, and David Kiesling, former Marine officer. So you've got a, quite a big team of cleared and qualified uh, former military and agency agency people. I think I think it's pretty impressive. And uh, you know, if you're a corporate counsel or a law firm out there that has this kind of thing, call Bob. I think it's a good idea. Uh, or call Ellis if you have. A, I know you do security clearances and debarments are your kind of focus these days. Bob's more of the tradecraft. Bob's guy. the tradecraft guy. <laughs> so so I guess that's the choice. Go to the the firm with lawyers who uh, who get paid massively high rates and can do fantastic memos or go to a firm that have reasonable rates, do fantastic memos, but are run by the former head of the CIA uh, legal team, right? So thank you everyone for watching this episode of Black Letter, the podcast. Uh, join us next time when we talk to somebody else about something else that's as interesting, maybe, maybe not. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Ellis. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.